Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Welcome, welcome to episode 11. What a day to be alive. Our season has started back up. Training is in full swing. We're encouraging, motivating, inspiring kids daily and watching them be brave and creative on the weekend when their, game, when their games are being played. We are back. Philippe, Andy, how's it feel to be back in full swing with season training, all that good stuff? Well, it was a good summer with Euros and Copa America, but definitely not being able to coach in games. Uh, you know, we never stopped. We kept running practices all summer long, but not being able to feel the drain a little of coaching a game was also obviously something that we missed tremendously. So it's good to be back. Yeah, Andy, your back is different now. All you're doing is walking around and telling us what to do. Um, you know, and before we get into anything else, I think we've got to deal with a really important topic, you know, uh, that's, that's coming up really fast. Uh, and, you know, that is that the next time our viewers see Philippe, he will have a big ball and chain on his leg. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if, if Philippe seems a little little quieter today, it's because he spent 30 straight, 36 straight hours in Miami awake um, celebrating uh, his last weekend of bachelorhood because he gets married on Friday. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And, and that ball and chain, you know, Philippe's from Brazil, so we all know what he's good at, and, you know, dribbling. <laughs> and that ball and chain's really going to screw up his game. <laughs> it was definitely but, harder. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I'd just like to say, though, that, um, that, that uh, Philippe is... Uh, with his his wife to be Shelby is punching above his weight because she's absolutely beautiful. We, we can all see Philippe. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. Uh, but before we, <laughs> if you're wondering what side of the aisle Andy will be sitting on on Friday, it'll definitely be the bride side, the back side. But, uh, you know, it brings back a memory, though, of Andrew when he got married uh, all those years. And, and it really helped Andrew calm his game down because, you know, Micah's a very calm in presence. So, you know, everybody knows what an analytical guy I am. I love the stats. And, and I, I kept a record of this. Previous to marrying, Andrew used to attempt 300 Maradonas and 199 Rainbows in a single game. Afterwards, he didn't get above double digits. He was running about 95. You know, I lived on the edge, always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. always. I can distinctly remember a game in Scotland when I was 13. I beat a guy down the sideline four times in a row and dribbled promptly out of bounds each time. And he was going the wrong way at the time. <laughs> Give the guy a corner kick. Andy's screaming, Andrew, when are you going to stop losing the ball? <laughs> I used to wake up having nightmares about Andrew when I used to coach him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, we're back in season. I mean, yes, kids have been training all summer long, but obviously with, with, uh, with various 
trips and 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 for the July and stuff going on. We know it's it's rare to have a full squad, but the last few weeks, all of my training sessions have had full squads. Um, two weekends ago was kind of a preseason tournament. This weekend was uh, back to league games. You know, a full slate of six games for me. All of my teams played, um, and it was an absolute blast to watch kids. Um, be brave, be creative, willing to take risks, willing to go for it. Um, and, and so that felt good to be back. Um, and that always brings, uh, it, it inspires or motivates me um, when we get back to recording in the studio uh, for another pod because I love talking this stuff and it's fun to talk about it and then go to training tonight and uh, implement uh, some of the stuff we discuss. Um, with that said, um, for you guys listening, right? Like, what would you say is the best sport? I think I feel I feel pretty confident that you would say that it's soccer, right? You're probably, um, uh, for whatever reason, uh, um, uh, a soccer person, quite into it, and you would consider it to be the best sport. But maybe more specifically, what components of sport make a specific sport the best sport? Right, if you think about it, like soccer is great because there, it's it's such a, a wide, diverse game. Um, oftentimes, uh, I remember Andy when we were kids growing up talking about soccer being chess on grass in terms of all the different options you get with every move. What direction will you go? Where will you take the ball? Where will you take the play? Um, and oftentimes in discussion with friends, friends who loved American football, who loved football, would talk about how football was the best sport. I never thought it was. Um, and my biggest frustration and gripe with football, even though I played and I played in high school and enjoyed it, was football very much felt like felt like war in as much as the players were just the foot soldiers doing what the generals up in the booth told them to do. And so it lacked a certain amount of creativity with the exception of maybe the quarterback or maybe the running back or definitely the coach who was calling the plays. But for the rest of the players, they kind of just went along to get along, right? But soccer has so much creativity baked into it. And and I think this is a really good jumping off point for this episode because we're going to talk about um, uh, a couple of... A couple of um, controversial topics maybe perhaps um but andy you tell a story it's one of it's one of the many stories you tell but it's a fantastic story and and it has to do with going back to your university days in i think cardiff wales um when you were studying phys ed um and you had some wise old lecturer that had some type of activity that used to did that helped you as students determine what the best sport was andy does this story ring a bell absolutely would you be willing to share it with our audience no 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 (laughs) I don't like to talk. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, and and before we get into the story, I I, want to give uh, some some, um, context to the story. Uh, We are first year physical ed students, you know, and so we're training to be teachers. And is this the first year phys ed was ever taught? 18, 22, 23, somewhere (laughs) in there? Do you want me to stay for this? Are you, you know, are you going to insult me like this again? Because I get all petulant and upset, and I'm going to chuck my teddy. Says the guy that said I didn't only did 199 uh, rainbows when I know it was 210. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, you know, we're in a, a, a situation where it's a phys ed degree, right? And we have international uh, everything in this phys ed degree: cricket players. Tennis players, obviously, you know, footballers, soccer players, rugby players, uh, um, you know, gymnasts, uh, swimmers. Netball. Netball. Absolutely. Netball. A lot of Americans don't even know what netball is, which is kind of female basketball in, in, in Britain. And with that's no backboard. With no backboard. Yeah. And, and so uh, we, I, I dated a netball player and she was a fanatic, you know, and, and incredibly good. 
Um, and anyway. Fanatic uh, about what? Yeah, I've got off track there for, <laughs> for a... <laughs> Let's get back on track here. Um, and, and so, um, you know, but it, what you got to understand is that this process that we went through was, was kind of like... Um, having you know 76 michael jordans in the room it was it was like the last dance you know we all saw the last dance right those of us that haven't got to watch it you know absolutely incredible and you know michael jordan if not the most competitive athlete that ever lived one of the top 10 probably you know and and that what that's what comes out is his absolute desire to to win everything that he got involved in you know total competitiveness well that was a facet of our phys ed degree we had top athletes with a tremendous desire to win and and that's the you know kind of the, the back setting to this this whole discussion that we had that lasted two semesters the whole of the first year our lecturer vernon mills uh, he threw you know a, a a small hand grenade into the room and he said what we're going to do over the next you know semester is we're going to decide uh, what components of sport are the top 15? The most important 15 things that sport, you know, builds, reinforces, bestows, uh, you know, its, its benefits on the world. You know, so what components, and, and I, I kind of, you know, always start this conversation when I do this with individuals with, what are the top three? In your estimation, what are the top three? But this is a podcast, so I'm going to throw the top three out there. And what's interesting is most people get two of the top three. And the two that they always seem to get are, uh, number one, teamwork, and, and number two, leadership. You know, when they look at sport, you know, they, they look at the fact that you've got to be part of a team, even in an individual sport, you know, your coaches become part of the team, your parents become part of the team, and so there, there's an element of teamwork. But in team sports, there's a massive element of teamwork. You know, and so, but, but then there's leadership. But that varies because, you know, in all honesty, what type of leadership can you get out of cross-country skiing? Even if you're skiing with somebody else, you probably can't talk because there's a gale blowing and, you know, you've got goggles on and you've got scarves on and you're covering your mouth up and... You know, and maybe with some modern technology you can talk these days, but, you know, back in the day, you, you probably couldn't talk in most weather conditions that you were out there long distance skiing in. So, so you know, that's the most extreme isolationist sport, if you like, that we could identify at the time. And, uh, and, and you know, and then, you know, we went through a whole, you know, range of, of sports trying to decide... Um, you know, uh, what were the major components of sport? And uh, we, we came up with, you know, leadership, teamwork, and the third one was a little bit more obscure, and that is, you know, the ability to think on your feet, to make instantaneous good decisions, you know, kind of when you're about to get in a car wreck and, you know, you've got, you know, an option to go right or left or drive through the wreck or slam on your brakes, you know, and, you know, how do you deal with this, this nasty situation that's evolving around you? Well, we were looking at sports and saying, you know, which is the sport that most prepares you for the unusual, where you haven't actually been there before? And so those were the top three. And, and there were lots of others, you know, and, you know, to give you some examples of others, you know, were the physical ones, agility and coordination, aerobic fitness. Anaerobic fitness. Anaerobic fitness. You know, and, and the list kind of goes on and on all the way through. We must have discussed definitely upwards of 25, 30 
probably closer to 40 different components of sport, before arriving at the top 15. So, you know, hopefully everybody's clear on, you know, what we spent the first semester on, which is identifying the top 15 components of sport, of which the top three were teamwork, leadership, and, you know, that, that ability... Decision-making. Yeah, decision-making. Act or yeah. react appropriately under pressure and make good decisions. And then, remember I said that Werner Mills had th thrown a small hand grenade into the room because there was a lot of disagreement, intensity, discussion, lots of competitive people. Because the university you went to, if I remember correctly, it had essentially the best university athletes in every different British sport attending this university. So it's the best rugby athletes, generally speaking, for most of, of Britain, right? The best footballers that are attending university for most of Britain. But it was definitely the best in Wales. You yeah. Know, it, it was probably one of the top three or four in Britain. So everybody was very proud of their sports. Yeah, everybody was extremely proud of their own sport. Sure. Obviously, and, and would almost die, you know, to prove it was the best sport. Yeah. As we They're British, out. so they were all bloody-minded. <laughs> <laughs> and... Thanks. <laughs> I'm not sure how to take that. Um, but uh, anyway, we, uh, we, we then um, got the atom bomb thrown at us. And Vernon Mills said, okay, we've decided the top 15 components. You know, and he looked very purposefully around the room, everybody in the room. And he said, now, he said, we're going to figure out over the next few months, which of your sports is the number one sport for all of these components? You know, and the fight was on and it wasn't it wasn't a fist fight it was it was knives guns <laughs> you, know, you know there were sickles there were scythes you know that you know every weapon you can imagine was was used in this this fight to prove amongst these incredibly competitive people that their sport was the number one sport you know and uh, and so uh, there was a ton of discussion about you know every single thing that anybody could bring up to highlight their own sport as being exceptional and, you know, at the end of the, uh, you know, the next semester, um, you know, everybody had to vote democratically on, um, you know, out of those top 15 components of sport, which were believed to be number one, which was believed to be number one, number two, number three, et cetera, all the way down to 15. And so everybody had to rank those different components. Remember, teamwork, leadership, ability to think on your feet, you know, aerobic fitness, agility, coordination, all those things had to be ranked, you know, the benefits of sport. And, uh, and so Vernon Mills took away the ranking sheets that everybody had filled in, went home, did the total in, and, you know, came back next lecture, and everybody was, you know, waiting for the big, you know, announcement, you know, and, uh, you know, we did the drum roll, you know, and, and so, and Vernon Mills said, and for the 23rd year in a row, association football, soccer. You know, and of course, me being me, you know, I stayed quiet in my seat, meek and mild, you know, and well, I might have actually jumped up on my seat and, and you know, and, and looked at the rugby players and, and made a rude gesture, after which I took off out of the lecture theatre as fast as I could. <laughs> but, 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 you know, it, it was my moment, you know. Did and, he chase you like the Italians did across the field in Virginia? Uh, we can't tell that story now, but if you ever catch Andy in person, ask him about the Italians chasing him in Virginia. Yeah, that's a good story. Yeah. <laughs> there's zero, there's zero soccer to be learned from the story, but it's a I'm good story. I'm at the time. Yeah. Um, but but uh, anyway, you know, uh, uh, of course, 
all of us soccer players in that room were ecstatic. Rugby players were human and probably still don't believe the result to this day. You thought we paid off Werner Mills, the lecturer, you know, but, but um, you know, it, it is what it is. And it was, it was 23 years in a row that democratically all of these athletes, of which, incidentally, the rugby players were the majority because the, the school was in Cardiff, South Wales, Cardiff Metropolitan University. And our rugby team was actually a first class rugby squad, which was the EPL of rugby in those days. You know, so, you know, we, we literally had a squad playing in the EPL, all younger players, but incredibly talented younger players. So if anything should have been picked based on numbers, it should have been rugby. And rugby was right up there. I think it was second, actually. But, but um, soccer was apparently the clear winner and always had been since Werner Mills had been running this as a lecturer, running this, you know, this series so- through the years. So take so taking that taking that story taking that 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 uh, the confirmation that that soccer is the best sport for all the most important components of sport um, when you when you uh, evaluate it across all those co- those components oftentimes and this brings us to the topic of today's uh, episode is is it's very vogue I I don't know if this exists in other parts of the world the soccer world and maybe we'll discuss it here in a moment but certainly in, in the United States like I often hear other coaches talk about or see on soccer Twitter, soccer coach Twitter, talk about how it's really important that we don't have these kids specialize in soccer when they're young, when they're kids. We don't need them. It's bad for them. It's not healthy for them. It's not good for them. And and this is a great jumping off point if 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 very specifically soccer is the best sport for developing all of the 15 most important components of sport, right? Why, what is so bad about specializing in soccer, if that's what the kid wants to do, at whatever age they want to start specializing in a sport? Well, you know, when you talk to people that are advocates of specialization, you know, they, they will tell you that you, you need to rise to the top quickly. And if that's the case, then, you know, jack of all trades doesn't rise to the top quickly in any one sport. But the people that are against specialization, the people that are in favor of diversity, you know, their viewpoint is that, you know, by, you know, being diverse, you become a more rounded human being, you know, and therefore, you know, later on, you're better able to be, um, you know, a qualified leader, if you like, because you're a more rounded human being. So those are the two extremes, you know, is, you know, you, do you want to go to the top of your sport quickly? And if you do, then, you know, you really need to specialize. But if you want to become a better rounded human being, then you probably need a diversity of experience. And you can see both arguments, right? I mean, ish, right? Like, I mean, sure, like we were talking Ted Lasso before we started recording, right? Like, like Roy Kent, Kent doesn't specifically be, seem to be all that well-rounded of a human being, right? That character. Um, but but a, a, somebody that grew up playing soccer Right and and developed all of those wonderful attributes that soccer trains teamwork leadership creativity right being able to think on their feet that is a well-rounded human being as long as they also spent time in school and spent time reading books and spent time doing the other things outside of sport that are necessary to develop a well-rounded human being but just because I grew up playing soccer football basketball baseball cross country that doesn't make me any more well-rounded in my opinion than had I just played soccer all the way through. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. Are you trying to say that Roy Kent isn't a well-rounded human being? I think by the end of season two, perhaps he might be. He seems to be well-rounded in a little bit <laughs> compared to season one. His, um, his vocabulary is well-rounded. <laughs> <laughs> Everything starts with F. It's incredible. <laughs> so, so having described the two extremes of the argument... Uh, um, and I've got to be honest, and, and you know, let me introduce this book I've got here right now. This is a book called Range um, by uh, a guy called uh, David Epstein. Um, no relation to Jeffrey Epstein, hopefully. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, David Epstein is a proponent of um, you know, having range in life, you know, range in sports. You know, and uh, you know the book's called Range, and, and, and it's why generalists triumph in a specialized world. And I'm sorry, but to use a couple of well-known English words, but not you know well used these days, you know David Epstein's theory is poppycock <laughs> or boulder dash, which means it's a load of crap when yeah. it's you know when it's applied to soccer, All right? and. And there's, there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. But first off, um, soccer, as, as we found out during our, you know, phys ed, Vernon Mills lecture series, you know, uh, uh, two semesters long, soccer has amazing range within the sport. And there's a reason why soccer is the biggest sport in the world. There's a reason why it's the number one sport in the, ro- the world in, in terms of team sports and participation, you know, and, you know, and, and just the, you know, the commercialization of the game, you know, it, it's by far and away, you know, the, the greatest sport. You know, the World Cup final is watched by many, many, many times more fans than any other event in world history uh, and, and just makes the Super Bowl, you know, look like a second-rate, you know, minor event. You know, and so, you know, soccer being that huge on a global scale, you know, there's a reason for it. It didn't just happen by chance. It wasn't just luck that soccer became that sport, you know, and it became that sport because it satisfies a greater range of human needs, which is what the study that we did in phys ed schools showed us, is that, you know, we play the sport, you know, and and we, of course, coach the sport that is more complete. It's more well-rounded. It's more diverse. And, you know, it's, to use David Epstein's word, it's more of a generalist's sport. You know, and people say to me, well, you don't use your hands. And I, I, I had a goalkeeper that could throw a javelin throw with a ball 60 yards and land it on a dime. And he could also underarm bowl a ball like he was playing temp-in bowling and get a strike every time. And you're not going to find a field player that doesn't use his hands during the entire game or her hands the entire game because they've got to hold off defenders. They've got a point. They've got a, there's a ton of different... V- Aside from throw-ins. Yeah, you know, it's, you know the, the, the hands and the arms are a vital part of the game. You know, of course, throw-ins. And, and, uh, you know, and, and then you look at gymnastics. I mean, I've had players on my teams over the years that can, can flip throw a ball 50 yards, you know, which is basically a gymnastics handspring. And coming out, they release the ball, and that ball goes twice as long as a, a normal long throw-in, you know, because it's literally come, you know, leveraged from the ground up. You know, and, and so... And, uh, and so at this point in time, it's a good time to introduce one of my all-time heroes into this, you know, Daley Thompson. And Daley Thompson was uh, a, a, uh, a decathlete. 
And Daly Thompson, um, you know, basically specialized in decathlon from his mid-teenage years because he had a coach that advised him to do that. Up until that point, Daly Thompson was a soccer player, you know, so he had the benefits of this all-round sport. And, you know, the coach recognized, although Daly Thompson was very fast, he recognized that Daly Thompson probably didn't have Olympic gold medal speed in the 100 meters. And so he advised Daly Thompson to become a decathlete, 10 sports, 10 events, you know, that are obviously individual events as well as being part of the decathlon within the Olympic range. And, and so uh, Daly Thompson um, became the most famous, least British decathlete, you know, in history. And he won two Olympic gold medals and he won a, a world championships you know, and set, you know, records that were, you know, established for like 30 years in the, in the decathlon event. And so, you know, he was a huge superhero in Great Britain at the time. And when he retired from decathlon, he played professional soccer, you know, in the English Football League. You know, so, you know, this was a, a, a guy that grew up playing soccer uh, and then became a decathlete and then went back to soccer, which is extremely rare. So... You know, what prepared him to be a decathlete? The obvious answer is soccer. Because in soccer, there is that range of activities that resemble the 100 meters, you know, sprint in the Olympics, you know, or the 400 meter hurdles, you know, which is another track event in decathlon, or the 1500 meters. You know, I was just talking downstairs with... uh, with Kim Kelly, whose daughter Moira plays Division One college for KU, and you know she mentioned that uh, that, that Moira uh, uh, covered um, the second most miles in a game for KU the other day as a defender, you know, and that's just exceptional, you know, but the game really pushes you to the limits, and Moira, having played for the Legends, did tons, hundreds and hundreds of one-on-ones you know, pushed aerobic and anaerobic fitness to the limits. And, you know, so even as a defender, even as a central defender, you know, who got forward last week and scored a a great goal, which, you know, was very reminiscent of the, you know, the thousands of times that she touched the ball in our box soccer courts. Moira is the second most um, active member of the KU roster in terms of just ground covered, let alone she's scoring goals out of a central defensive situation. And, you know, she's just a, an, an all-round talented athlete. But that just doesn't happen unless you're put into an all-round talented athlete scenario. And that's what soccer provides. But it also provides that more in the Kansas City Legends Club because of our facilities and our coaching philosophy, you know, and the culture that we have, you know, as well as the brave creative leadership for life emphasis that we we believe in so intensely so you know Werner Mills came up with you know a study that showed that soccer was 23 years in a row the number one um, most diverse and most beneficial sport for kids to play and you know that's why I think that David Epstein's um, claim that that you shouldn't specialize in any one sport, is a bunch of poppycock or boulder dash. You know, a bunch of garbage, rubbish, as we say in England. 
we so off the top, like we mentioned, right? Like that that, and I don't know if it's a uniquely American thing, but I definitely hear it oftentimes from American coaches, some some coaching friends, like don't specialize, don't specialize. They're very prominent uh, um, on social media and very saying that, which seems odd. In Brazil, is that a common topic? I mean, there are, are there articles written that hey, don't specialize in any sport when you're young. Not really, because you know. In Brazil, the culture that, you know, kids play every single sport doesn't really exist. Most kids already just play soccer, you know. Um, sometimes kids don't really like soccer, and then they end up playing other sports. But, I mean, thinking back, like, everybody does another kind of activity. And, you know, play the guitar or do something, you know, something else that it's not just you know, the one activity they have outside uh, of school is soccer. So, you know, I had a ton of friends who also play tennis. A um, couple, I mean, girls use, usually play volleyball a lot. Uh, but it's not that big of a conversation of a topic because soccer represents like 95% of the Brazilian culture. So the only thing that people say is, you know, sometimes kids that, you know, get really specialized on the sense of going to the academies way too early and you know in that their case it's uh, like it a, a boarding school it's becomes sport, a job it's too not early. the sport that's the problem exactly it's the, it's yeah. the pressure of yeah. them you know to get into that environment but just playing for playing it's it's not a a conversation that i've ever experienced it, over there i, does, I have a hypothesis does the name leandro barbosa mean anything to you who leandro barbosa yes Ba- basketball player on the NBA. Uh huh. Yeah. Brazilian. Yeah. Yeah. We have a few Brazilian players in the NBA, actually. Yeah, there's quite a few. Yeah. 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 What sport did they grow up playing first? Probably soccer. Uh huh. That's that's part of Barbosa's background. You know, he's and and he he uses soccer skills. You know, when he's warming up for basketball, often. Yeah. You know, and and does that stuff on a basketball. Yeah, court. and if you if you look at all Brazilian athletes, you know, they've, I'm sure, I haven't done the research, but I'm sure. As kids, they grew up playing soccer. Whether they were good or not, I don't know. But they they all, you know, it's just like it doesn't exist a kid in Brazil that didn't grow up playing soccer. Some people, some of them weren't very good, didn't really like it. But, like, up until I was 12, 13 years old, my fees at classes, it would be like a professor saying hi, giving a soccer ball, bye. So, like, the kids had to play soccer. You know, it's I, just so I have a hypothesis that the reason that we hear this so often from American soccer coaches is because uh, it's nostalgia. It's 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 guys that are my generation and older where soccer wasn't a big sport, even if they played like for me, soccer was my number one sport. But I played other sports, too. In the neighborhood, I couldn't play soccer. I had to play other sports. I have a good coaching friend that grew up in Fort Dodge, Iowa, right? Grew up playing baseball as maybe his first sport. And it's this nostalgia of football in the fall, basketball in the winter, baseball in the spring that we want to that we want to go back to to our youth. And we want to make sure our kids that, that, that we're growing up this next generation are experiencing all all of these wonderful sports that we loved for 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 variety of reasons and that's what drives coaches soccer coaches to say kids shouldn't specialize early now don't get me wrong i think kids that want to play other sports should do other sports like it, it 
every moment that um, that a kid isn't training right or playing soccer right they're taking away time that helps them further their their soccer abilities perhaps lowers their ceiling um, uh, but if the kids aren't ready to spo- specialize then that's where you're going to get uh, issues related to what you talked about the the kids going too early to the to the professional academies right with burnout and whatnot but if a kid wants to play and they want to specialize, right? Um, then I think us as, as coaches and, and, and parents have a responsibility just to watch and make sure that they're, they're, they're not overusing it, overdoing it, right? And they're, and they're still having a giant element of fun attached to it. And I think that's the problem that we have most often. One of the biggest advantages against specialization is the injury factor. Mm-hmm. And it, it, baseball has got uh, you know, a, a, a horrible... What, what they call an acute overuse injury problem with... Specific to pitchers. Yeah, pitchers, and that results in Tommy John surgery is what mm-hmm. they call it. You know, because these pitchers, you know, will throw thousands and thousands of incredibly similar uh, pitches, mm-hmm. you know, and eventually it just tears, at, you know, at the arm, the arm muscles, and, and, you know, it just causes, you know, massive problems, you know, in, in the, you know, the, the whole system of the shoulder and arm and elbow and... You know, everything gets completely messed up because, you know, they're just doing the same thing again and again and again. You know, and people use, you know, the, you know, ah, well, you know, we don't want our kids to get, you know, really badly injured. So we want them to cover a wide range of sports because, you know, we want our kids to be all round fit. And I look at them and, you know, internally I'm shaking my head because, I've, you know, I've told this story thousands of times now, you know, over the years. And, you know, I look at them and I say, but soccer is a combination of hundreds Everything. of sports <laughs> you know and they look at me like puzzled you know how's a soccer a combination of hundreds of sports i said well are we just sprinting all the time no no are we uh, half pace running all the time are we three-quarter pace running all the time are we walking all the time you know like baseball players do uh, had to get that one in sorry <laughs> um and you know or you know uh, are we you know sprinting all the time you know you know is, we've got we're doing all these part of the time you know, are we running forwards all the time, you know, or backwards or sideways, you know, are we jumping? Are we heading each other? Are we heading the ball all the time, right? Like it's not, it's, we're not even just kicking against, kicking over and over and over again, like, like you do as a baseball pitcher, you're, right? You're, like you're kicking, you're passing, you're receiving, you're dribbling, you're doing skill, you're, you know, changing direction, you're running straight. I mean, it's just, it's so diverse and every single, I mean, it, there's not a single play in soccer that is exactly the same another play. You exactly. can see like, you know, goals that are similar or plays that are similar, but like every little, pl- every single play in the history of the game, counting professional games and youth games and pickup soccer, every, th- every single play is completely different. So I, it's I, the less repetitive sport in the whole world. That's why I don't like baseball. Yeah, yeah I'm laughing. I love me some baseball. I, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm laughing because, you know, it's obviously a Brazilian that's talking here, not an Englishman, because in, in English soccer, every play that you play is, is not unique. You know, <laughs> it's, it, it's passed sideways or backwards, you know, and, and, and then it's passed sideways and backwards again, and, and then it's playing sideways or backwards again. <laughs> but you're forgetting and, about the stick it in the mixer. <laughs> and, and uh, uh, you know, so... You know, obviously, there's a big cultural difference between Brazil and England. And, you know, in Brazil, you know, no two plays are, are even remotely similar, probably. But in England, a lot of plays are very similar. I mean, look at England in the Euros in the final. You know, Luke Shaw scores a goal within the first few minutes. 
you know, and from that point onwards, um, you know, they played totally scared. In fact, you know, I coined the uh, the word, um, you know, England played safety ball for the rest of the, the time until Italy scored upon them. You know, it, you know, they played safety ball. And, you know, that's why they lost in the end. Because you can't play safety ball for 87 minutes plus whatever extra time is added on and hope not to concede one goal. And it wasn't a great goal that Italy scored, you know, and there was a lot of luck to it. But sooner or later, having all that possession and having all that pressure, Italy was going to get that goal. But but coming back to the repetition thing that you just said, right? Like every time you strike a ball in a soccer game, unless it's a dead ball, which how many dead balls do you strike in a game? A couple maybe. It's a different strike. Your muscles are used differently, right? Because the ball might be coming at a different speed. The ball might be coming in a little bit different direction. The defender might be placed a little bit differently. And so there's so overuse just isn't a thing other than just the the, the players are just physically playing too much right if that makes sense and like, even and even with that balls if you think about it like you you get a corner kick you hit it on the first post you know they saw your play the next one you're probably going to hit a different one even if it's in the same corner the same side and you're the same player taking it it's going to be a little different you know um, and i just realized one thing that is very funny um english soccer is kind of like rugby you play backwards and sideways the whole time, and to go forward, you gotta go long and high. <laughs> I never realized hey, that. I, you know, I thought that while I was at phys ed school, but I didn't say that in front of the rugby <laughs> players. You know, I wouldn't be here today if I had. <laughs> you just made a lot of enemies, you know, of, of friends of mine that played rugby. By the way, I'm glad they're far away from Kansas City, Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> They'll find you. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, we we just happen to have the most complete sport. You know, the you know the study at Cardiff University. You know, the, the, you know that just the evidence we see from all other sports across the world. You know, make our sport the number one sport for range, and because of that, it makes it the number one sport to specialize in. Which there's a little bit of a conundrum in that. You know, a contradiction in that statement. You know, but because it has the greatest range as a sport, you know, we need to specialize in the sport. But th there's something else about our sport that, um, that, that is also, you know, a lot of people would find this concerning. Um, uh, but, you know, just the nature of sport in general is that it's a very limited environment. It's a very limited career. Because... In most sports, you know, they're intense, you know, and soccer is, is incredibly well-rounded, but it's also incredibly intense. So the stress on the body is huge. And, and so, you know, it's long been hypothesized that about the perfect age of maturity in relation to your experience and your, your health and your fitness is right around 27. You know, that's when you're supposed to be at the peak of your powers, experienced enough, that you know what you're doing and you know how to make good tactical choices, still creative and skillful enough that you're prepared to take risks under pressure and you can be very, very successful, you know, and you've still got the aerobic capacity and the physiology, you know, to play at a very high level because you're kind of at your peak of fitness. So, you know, from that 27 year, 27th year on, you know, it's, it's supposedly all downhill. Well, that may be changing a little bit because we're seeing um, in both the, the men's and women's games, 
you know, players like Ibrahimovic and, and CR7 um, that are holding on now into their late 30s and are still playing at the top of the game. But we have to remember they're vastly different players to when they were younger. You know, they're not taking on three or four players and running 50, 60 yards with the ball and scoring outrageous goals. You know, they're playing, you know, more within a limited range of physiological and skillful abilities, you know, uh, and passing a little bit more because they don't have the physical ability to go absolutely 110% all game long like they used to be able to when they were younger. So, you know, uh, but we're seeing maybe that ideal age of 27 being pushed back to maybe 28, maybe 29. But when my father was playing, it was very unusual for a player to last until they were 30. You know, and somebody like Stanley Matthews that played until he was 50. 52, at, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, the top level yeah. was unheard of back in those, you know, in those days. So Stanley Matthews is literally a marvel. But once again, Stanley Matthews was a super skillful player. So his skills made up as his physiological abilities waned, his skills and his creativity made up for his lack of physiology as he got older. So uh, it's another reason to be incredibly skillful and creative. And your dad, last longer. In your dad's era, the game was was not creative enough. It was too. It was too simple. It was too much built on physic, physical physical play. Correct. Well, for for probably the first, well, uh, until I left home, there was a set of football boots. My dad's football boots hanging up in our garage, our garage at home, and those things had, you know, they they were like German jack boots. They had toes on those boots that stopped you from having any type of a touch. <laughs> yeah. The big, fat, rounded toes that were perfect for toe-poking. You know, it was like the end of a mallet on, on the end of your boot, you know, and a big mallet at that, you know. And, and so, you know, yeah, you know, the, the Brazilian-style shoes, you know, that, that eventually became, you know, the norm in soccer across the world were unheard of in England in the 1940s and 50s. Nobody wore those to play the game. They wore the big, heavy, big, round-toed, you know, with, with big, long studs at the bottom shoes because, you know, the English fields were nothing more than marshes mm -hmm. during the middle of the winter, you know, back in those days. It, from a coaching perspective, right, like that's a, to most of our audience is, is that if we are going to, if our kids are going to be able to specialize earlier uh, at the point that they want to, our sessions have to be worthwhile uh, worthwhile I don't know if that's the best term but like what I mean is that like the kids the kids have to come and it and it and it has to be fun right not boring right the, they have to be active and engage the entire session no lines for example right the sessions have to be hard work right um, and, and that means when from the time the session starts to this time the session ends, the session ends like kids even though they'll tell you they don't want to work hard they've got to work hard right if 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 they're able to kind of hide within the session or or disappear at times or wait their turn right they lose engagement level and without that hard work component they're going to lose they're going to burn out quicker on your session um, our sessions have to be full of responsibility no hiding and you know I, I probably mentioned this before in the pod but it's bare it's worth repeating it again I remember in university getting and we'd be playing 6v6 v6 non-directional keep away um and and 
you know, me having a test the next day and not being totally engaged in the session. And I could just float through the entire session and not lose my starting spot because there was enough people on the pitch that it didn't matter. But there was never a legend session where we were playing 1v1s or 2v2s that I could hide. The sessions were just not built that way. And so if we make our sessions as coaches really worthwhile where the kids can are working hard, right? They've got to work hard. And that's an important component of them thinking that they're getting something from it and engaged and having fun. And all three of those things are intertwined, interrelated. Then kids can specialize early with not nearly the degree of risk to burnout or or um, or any other negative that could come from early specialization. And burnout is something to focus on. Um, but if the sessions are worthwhile and fun and hardworking, then burnout really isn't a concern. Yeah, and, and one of the things I'd like to point out is is we even specialize within our curriculum and within our practices. So. We just don't specialize in, in soccer per se as you know, the, the, the wider version of what we see soccer as. You know? And it, it, here's a question for, the, for everybody that's listening, as well as you guys. You know, what is it that most clubs, most soccer programs around the world focus on, if you like, specialize in more than any other skill? Which pa- skill? Passing. Passing, right? We don't. You know, it, within our program, we don't specialize in passing, right? And because passing is the least fun thing of the three core tenet, the three three core skills: dribbling, shooting, passing. The least fun one is passing. Bingo. And and maybe Philippe can address this because um, in Brazil, you know, you don't have the competition from other sports. What is it that made that the you know the case? You know, so we can't just assume that, you know, that Brazilian soccer became, you know, the behemoth, you know, the, the, the absolute gargantuan monster that it is within Brazil so that it dominates all of the sports by chance, right? We can't assume that. You know, what is it about Brazilian soccer that killed the desire of kids to play other sports that we certainly don't have in, in English soccer? It's fun. It's fun, and I mean, the way we play soccer is very free. And, you know, if you look at our culture with carnival and, you know, the beach and everything, you know, when you think about Brazil, Rio, uh, it's it's a culture that stimulates freedom and, you know, fun. Expression. Not super organized or, mm, quite frankly, not a lot of rules. So, you know, when you get a sport that is very all-rounded, as soccer and you know for for you to play hockey you need ice you need a puck you need uh, a stick you need equipment you know you need skates to play soccer all i needed was socks i can make a ball with my socks i could get a um, coca-cola can and play with that coca-cola can with my friends on the street so soccer is a, sp- a sport that you can literally play with your buddies anywhere with anything you don't even need a ball you know you can make a ball you know with whatever you see you know and you can play soccer and have some fun so that's what you know soccer brings to brazil and you know it's very very similar to our culture so i think obviously it below past anything you know any other sport could ever you know bring to to, to us so i guess that's the answer you know soccer just it's perfectly so attached to our culture. So we, we can see why the other sports didn't get a foothold, right? 
Yeah, but like oftentimes when you when you talk about players that burn out, right? It's over, they overtrained. They or or injuries happen. They overtrained. You never hear about burnout or 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 injuries coming from he played too much, she played too much, right? There's a very difference in the word of play and train. For me, the, the thing and in that, Brazil you played. The thing that burns out players in Brazil is most players, and I would say ninety five percent of the players that go to the academies to to play there they need that as their way to save their families from poverty so it's a lot of pressure so it's not the the sport it's not play it's not play it's the pressure it's a job it becomes a job when they are 11 12 13 and the ones that you know they are not from the favelas they are not trying to save their 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 kids their families from poverty they be they're put, being put in that environment. There, there's a lot of pressure, you know, and they get to, you know, even an earlier age, and they're like, "I'm done with that. It's so much pressure. It's, it's a job. It's not fun anymore." Well, when you're just playing, like nobody burns out. Like the, you, you just can't. You go in Brazil, you see the, you know, 35-year-old doctor who, you know, it's completely overweight and you know, shouldn't be playing soccer. He can't perform. But he's there with his friends, you know, and he's playing soccer. You see guys that are 60, 70 years old. They can barely move, but they're on a soccer field. It's like Andy every Wednesday night. <laughs> standing in one spot, you know, and once the ball comes to, to him, he just, you know, passes the ball to somebody or maybe takes a shot. And, like, for them, it, it, it's just fun. Like, people don't get burned out of playing soccer because it's so diverse and so, you know, in loving, uh, I don't know. I get emotional so, talking about it. So, so you know, we, you know, we're a club. So, you know, as a club, we we run organized soccer. But you know, I was giving a coach's course uh, the week before last, and you know, and and I said, so guys, you know, what do we start the practice off with? You know, and and you know, I got some blank stares because the new coaches, you know, and I said, you know, we start the practice off with fun. You know, and so, you know, we play foxes and rabbits where they dribble up and down the, you know, the field and you've got to hit every kid's ball with your ball and they, instead of being a rabbit, become a fox. You know, and why do we start our practice with fun? You know, and, and they're like, well, you know, obviously it's enjoyable. I said, but they want to be there, right? If the practice is starting with fun, then they're going to be hassling their parents to get out of the house to get to practice on time. If they're late once and they miss their foxes and rabbits, mom and dad are going to hear about it next time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, now you have a reversal of parental roles. You know, I was always the parent trying to get my kids out of the door. But if they were looking forward to what they were going for, to, that they would be hustling me to get out of the door. Mm -hmm. you know? And so you know, most you know, teams are working on passing, you know, things that are dry, things that are fairly boring. You know? And it's the parents hassling the kids to get out of the door because the coaches don't start the practice off with a fun game. You know? And you know, 10 minutes into the practice, the kids are having fun. You, know, you say, okay, guys, we're going to return to this. You know, now we're going to do some work on this skill, that skill, whatever the skill is. You've got a much more receptive group of kids because they've had a blast for 10 minutes. They've been scoring goals. They've been cheering and shouting, you know, trash talking on each other, whatever, depending on their age. You know, and, you know, but just having a good time. You know, then you get into the work. You know, and then we're working, and we're working for 20 minutes or 25 minutes. You know, and then you know, we're, we're starting to feel the, the motivation ebbing away. Because we've been working, you know, we've been doing one-on-ones, you know, we've been, you know, and that's dribbling and shooting. So even that's more fun than what 95% plus clubs do, which is, you know, passing. 
6v6v6. 6v6, v or as Greg Burhalter, our national team coach, said, five versus two, uh, which we'll get to later. You know, and, uh, you know, we're, we're in a situation where a lot of the, the work part of what we're doing isn't as much fun. You know, we're working on the Maestro series, which are the six moves we think are world class, one for every situation. So we're working on stuff that is actually quite fun for the kids. They have a ball each. We're working on technique at those ages, you know, the five-year-olds, the six-year-olds, the seven-year-olds, eight, nine. You know, and so they're having a lot of fun with what we're doing, but even then their motivation starts slagging. Well, in the middle of practice, we play another fun game. You know, it's related to what we've been doing, but it's designed purely for fun. You know, and for that 10-minute period, I become a cheerleader again. You know, uh, you know, I'm just a circus master. You know, I'm giving the kids a ton of fun. You know, and then 10 minutes on, we go back into, you know, one stage further of the skill we've been working on, and we get the serious work in again. You know, and 10 minutes before the end of practice, we break out into what they all want to finish with, which 99.9% .9 of the time is a scrimmage. Yep. You know, is some type of a small-sided game between the players on the team. You know, and so, so the kids are looking forward to getting there. Then they work hard for a while. Then they, they, they start to get a little bit bored. And so we get their motivation up again by giving them a fun game. And then they work hard again. And then towards the end, we give them a scrimmage. And so they finish on a high. And they're all moaning when I say, that's it, guys. End of practice. Sorry. They're moaning. They don't want to stop. They want to carry on you know, practicing. And, and that's how we leave them, wanting more. So they want to come back. You know, so two days later, another practice is scheduled, and they're bugging their parents to get to the facility so they don't miss a second of the fun game, the foxes and rabbits, or whatever fun game we're playing with them. So, so talking about Triple G, right, Greg Burhalter? Andy doesn't know that he's called Triple G in U.S. Men's National Team fan circles. You Americans make up these stupid names. He's got three, three G's in his first name. How many first names do you yeah, know but, have you know, this three of the, of the same letter? It's just the American culture, isn't it? You know, everything's hype. You know, it's you know. Triple G. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you went and listened to Greg chat and take a Q&A from local coaches in Kansas City at the U.S. National Training Center. And you were like, ah, oh, I've, got, I've got the man, the myth, the legend, Triple G, right here in front of me. Um, and you asked him a question, which was, if I remember something, what, what should we as coaches be focusing on? I, and I'm, I'm going to back up a little bit because uh, it was a tremendously interesting conversation. And so I, I, just, I don't want to just hit on this one topic and make it sound like I have no respect for the man. You know, he's done a fantastic job with the U.S. national team program up until this point. You can't argue with what he's done, you know, and he obviously has massive knowledge about working with older people, you know, and with adults and people at the elite level of the game. And so, you know, this isn't a, criticize, a criticism of, of Greg from, you know, a, a, an adult coaching perspective. This is just a, an observation of something that I think maybe he's got wrong from a youth perspective. Which is our audience, is youth soccer enthusiasts and coaches. Right, you know, yeah. which, which I, and the, the, the question I specifically asked him was, and as I looked around, you know, there was a lot of my friends from the coaching community that coach in other clubs, and, uh, you know, but we all knew each other pretty much, you know, and, you know, because it was by invitation, and it was the heads of the clubs that were invited, and, and, uh, and so... Um, they were asking questions, and I kept my question to the very end, and I said, Greg, I said, all of us here are coaches in the youth community. I said, so, um, you know, you've discussed a lot of things that apply to the national team, you know, to adults and to incredibly gifted adults at the, at the highest level. 
And, and I said, what would you specifically advise us to do in terms of the core practice content that we should follow with our teams if we want our players to get to the highest level? And guess what he told me? I know. I know you know. It's <laughs> my wife says every this time. Is, this, is, <laughs> this, this is my dramatic pause so that this, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> this, this hits home. Greg Berhalter told me we should be doing five versus two with our kids. So stand in a circle, pass the ball around. I'm not necessarily saying standing in a circle. Well, five versus two, that Rondo typically is played yeah. out standing in a circle. It may be the most common five versus two, but you know he might have meant five versus two going to a target. Okay. You know, but either way, uh, I have to say I completely disagree with him. You know, because five versus two is teaching you to play from an advantageous position where you've basically got most of the weapons in your arsenal. You've got the ball. It's easy. You've got four teammates. And, you know, if you can't penetrate at that level with, with the ball and four teammates, you know, playing against, you know, two guys with the similar physical abilities as you, uh, then, you know, you need a good whack around the ear. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, and, and my position is that, we should at least go in, you know, one versus one, two versus two, three versus three, possibly go in one versus two, two versus three, three versus four. So we learn how to penetrate against teams that park the bus against very talented teams because Casey Legends as a club and our Legends clubs in general are very talented. You know, we go one on one, we beat people, we score goals from 25 yards, you know, because we do those things. We go numbers down in attack in practice, we go numbers even in practice. You know, we set up scenarios where we're constantly having to deal with bigger and better challenges, you know, instead of having it easy, you know? And, you know, it, it, it's interesting that you, you brought up this question because, um, you know, I'm looking at, um, at the way that the modern game is being played and teams are playing, like they're playing five versus two the whole time. You know, and that's fine when you're just working the ball across your defense, you know, because you've got a goalie and you've got four defenders and you can go across the defense and the other teams, you know, are often playing with just two forwards. So they can't high pressure you, you know, if they've got two against five, you know, and you've got all of these outlets. But to me, the point of the game, especially if we're training youngsters, is penetration breaking the lines, getting the ball out of the defense into the midfield, out of the midfield into attack, and then hopefully getting the ball you know, beyond their defense and creating a goal-scoring opportunity. However we do that, maybe it's in the one-on-one, -on -one, maybe it's with a quick combination, and maybe we score a 30-yard bomb because they haven't shut us down, they haven't taken away our shot. You know, or maybe we're that good, we can score from 25 yards, even if they're shutting us down, because we can bend the ball around that player into the top goal the corner of the net. With the, the economy of training, if we can train our players to beat uh, numbers down, uh, if their numbers down two versus three and create space and score, then our players should be fine in a 5v2 without training them. In a 5v2. Absolutely. Uh, uh, so, so that's simply put. So as we start to, to wind down this episode, Andy, what else, what else do you uh, think is, is really important that, that, um, that our audience understands from a specialization perspective? Well, one of the things I wanted to get into was the way that soccer seems to provide um, top athletes for other sports. And, you know, if you want evidence that soccer 
um, has a great influence on you know players that have gone to the top in other sports. You know, you, you should study the writings of Kobe Bryant because he gives soccer a massive credit for developing his ability as a point guard because, you know, as he observed, you know, it's a lot easier to do something with your hands than it is your feet. And he grew up in, you know, his, his, one of his parents was in the forces in Italy and he grew up in an Italian environment. He played soccer before he played basketball, you know, and he developed, uh, you know, skill with his feet, you know, which is a lot harder than skill with hands. Feet are lumps of clay and hands are dexterous instruments, you know, and, uh, and so he could read angles, read space, you know, read pressure, had the agility, the coordination, you know, and the ball handling skills with his feet. And all of that, he felt, transferred phenomenally into the game of soccer. You know, and, and so, sorry, into the game of basketball uh, from soccer. And, and then I, I like to bring up, you know, a, a, a kid that used to play for me. And he played for me for about three years and, you know, was a tremendous athlete, you know. And he, he left me to focus and specialize uh, in football. And uh, he became a pro bowler. Um, he uh, had the, the largest number in world history at some point. Uh, maybe still has, of all purpose yards in the history of the NFL up until the point he was playing, and maybe he still holds that record to this day. He was only five foot six inches tall as an adult, but he was probably about eight foot six inches wide, you know, and that's why he had the nickname The Tank, you know, because he was an incredibly strong, well-being athlete. And, and as a college player and a professional footballer, he trained his upper body to be massive for somebody so short in terms of height. And, you know, and the, for those of you that know football, you probably already have his name in your mind. Um, his name is Darren Sproles. And you know, Darren came to me, no skills. Uh, Darren, look on YouTube, you know, Darren with an I, D-A-R-R-I-N, Sproles. Uh, S-P-R-O-L-E-S, you know, and look up his highlight uh, films, and, and you'll see you know, what, a, what an absolute uh, incredible marvel of physiology was for, for one so short. The most successful player, um, you know, especially taking into account his size, uh, ever in the history of the NFL. And, you know, and Darren, for three years, worked on Maradona turns and Matthews moves and scissors and Cruyff turns. And it wasn't until this morning before the podcast I actually looked up Darren Sproul's highlights. And I did that specifically because um, his father, right around the time that, that um, his mother, Annette, died, a wonderful lady, rest in peace, um, his father and I got into a conversation and... Larry said to me specifically, he said, uh, you might not realize this, Andy, and I, you know, in those days, highlight films weren't available to anything like the degree they're available to these days, and I didn't realize it, and Larry said, Darren still uses his Maradona turn playing for K-State in Division One and destroys people with it. But it wasn't until this morning, when, with this pod coming up, that I actually decided to check out the truth and veracity of that statement, you know, and look at K-State highlights. And there it was. Darren was rotating with the ball in his hands, which is a thousand times easier than rotating with the ball at your feet doing a Maradona turn. And Darren was rotating out of immense pressure against monsters that were intent on breaking every bone in his body if they could. You know, and he was using this incredible spin, which 
takes amazing guts to do and, and competence with that type of a movement because if you get it wrong, you're spinning as well as getting crushed by a 300-pound lineman. You know, and, and Darren was doing that again and again and again in this highlight film. And you're welcome to look up Darren Sproul's K-State highlights and you will see what I'm talking about. He learned that with the Legends Club. Not, not according to me, according to his dad, Larry. You know, and so, uh, you know, I, of course, agree with Larry because I'm the guy that actually went through the motions and taught him, you know, all of the technical coaching points of a marathon turn and insisted that he use that in practices and games. Um, but the what I'm trying to get at here is Kobe Bryant said it, Darren Sproul said it, and the the top athletes in a range of sports that have said this over the years is just astounding. Um, my wife, before I met her, was friends with the wife of Manute Bol. And, you know, Manute Bol, you know, grew to be seven foot seven inches tall, uh, came from South Sudan in Africa. And, you know, come to find, I've got the book about Manute, there's a biography about, about Manute, but come to find that, that he played exclusively soccer in South Sudan when he was growing up. And he built his coordination. Don't get me wrong, the guy's seven foot seven. How coordinated can he be? <laughs> but somebody that's seven foot seven should never have been as coordinated as he is. You know, and to this day, you know, our house is, is the bold kid's second home. I mean, you know, I come home and, you know, they're sitting in the house watching TV. They've got the door codes. You know, they, they wipe us out of candy and we keep buying more, but we can't keep enough in stock. You know, and to this day, and unfortunately, poor Manute, rest in peace, um, died of sepsis on his way back from a mission trip to South Sudan. Um, you know, a great man who spent you know most of his money on on supporting family and the society back in his home country because they were dirt poor. Um, but uh, you know what we're seeing is across a range of sports, uh, and without laboring this because there's hundreds and hundreds of these guys. You look at tennis. And John McEnroe was a soccer player before he took up tennis. Bjorn Borg, uh, Boris Becker, and the big three over the last you know, decade, uh, you know, we're talking about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, were all you know, first-class soccer players when they were younger in, in their home countries of, uh, of Croatia and Switzerland and Spain. And, and, so, um, you know, and, and then you look at uh, football with Darren Sproles, but the, you know, across the, you know, the world of football, Christian Okoye, who played here in our hometown here for the Kansas City the Chiefs. The Nigerian nightmare. Yeah, what a monster he was. But he was a Nigerian nightmare with incredible coordination yeah. that, that was built playing the game of soccer in his native Nigeria. And, you know, and, and in basketball, you know, you've got Steve Nash, you've got uh, uh, Patrick Ewan, um, who was from a Caribbean island, and, and uh, Olajuwon. Hakeem Olajuwon. Uh, yeah, they all grew up in various different places, continents, you know, Italy, Africa, the Caribbean, and but they played Usain soccer. Bolt also played soccer. Usain Bolt. In fact, he, you know, he was on the circuit trying out. He got offered a professional contract to go and play in Australia and turned it down after he finished sprinting. You know, and you look at every sport, you know, where speed is a factor, where coordination is a factor, and ex-soccer players who played mostly soccer when they were young are playing you know, in, in other sports at an elite level. Mm -hmm. And that just doesn't happen from other sports into soccer. Mm -hmm. You have to specialize in soccer to go to the very top mm -hmm. in soccer. You can dabble a bit in other sports, but if you don't specialize, 
then you know you're SOL as far as being able to go to the very top of the sport. I mean, you look at, at, at the NFL, right? Like a Tamba Ali for the Chiefs fans, a defensive end. I think he's from Liberia. I don't think he ever played football. He's like 18 when he when he showed up on the shores of the United States because football's so much built on physicality and power, um, stuff stuff that God gave you. Don't get me wrong; you've got to put some work into it as well. But it's not the same as as a sport like soccer. And and I, I understand that we're reaching the end of the episode here, so yeah, yeah. you're going to have to wrap it up. We probably need to do another episode on yeah, this because we, yeah, we yeah. didn't even get to my cue cards. But I made a point of wanting to to. Uh, to, to say how much I, you know, before we finish, how much I hate working with Philippe and Andrew, with you two guys. Um, because every time I work with you guys, Philippe, you specifically, Brazil reminds me how ugly and unsuccessful English soccer is. And I, I hate it. I hate being around that reminder on a consistent basis. I love Britain. I love England. You know, and, and you know, after inventing the game, nonetheless... You throw in my face every time I look at you how awful we play the game these days. So, so you know, and, and, and with, with regard to the USA, you know, I, I'm reminded how um, England screwed up a massive head start in the game, being, you know, the, the birth of the modern game, you know, in order to become a second-rate soccer-playing nation because they play awful soccer. So Andrew reminds me of that because, you know, the younger nation, the USA, constantly reminds me of the fact that England hasn't leveraged its massive head start. So thank you for throwing that in my face on a consistent basis. Whatever we can do. <laughs> Whatever we can do. Well, uh, guys, thanks for listening again. I haven't mentioned this enough lately. Um, we have uh, social media on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Find us there. Share our stuff. Uh, it certainly helps us grow. Um, the audience um, as well. Uh, if you can like and review this wherever you listen to this on whatever pod platform you do, that would also help us a ton. And last but certainly not least, we are uh, we have a ton of uh, resources and help, both video wise um, and, um, and and written. Um, and we would love to help you. So if you have a question or a, a thought, or if there's something you think we could help out with reach out to us through email. It's pretty easy, easy to find us, and we're happy to, to, to help you out there. With that said, Philippe, next time we speak, you'll be heavier carrying around that ball and chain. <laughs> uh, and I can't wait to see Andy on the dance floor Friday night after Me he neither. gets Very one or two O'Doul's in him. I bet he's going to be just a, a, a whirling dervish on the dance floor. Lock your women up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, until next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks. See you. Bye-bye. Thank you.